This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Where is Bruce Shula? This is episode six, A Legal Perspective. My name is Graham Crowley. Thanks again for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience. There is discussion about death, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Firstly, I would like to thank those listeners who have contributed the cost of a cup of coffee toward my podcasts. You know who you are, so I do not intend to read out names, but thank you. I do not profit from podcasting, I podcast because of my interest in the justice system. People have an interest in true crime matters and I enjoy reporting on true crime matters. But receiving some reward for my otherwise unpaid work is appreciated. In the last episode, Ghost Evidence, we discussed and reviewed the evidence that was known but not given at trial. I asked some questions including what would the verdict have been if that evidence had been heard by the jury. I decided I wanted to obtain a legal perspective on the case, and who better to ask than retired solicitor Jeff Johnson. Before I get to that, you may remember the name Bob Hayden. He had a police career with the Northern Territory Police and the Queensland Police spanning more than 31 years. He was a local law policeman from 1998 through to his retirement, in 2002. Bob Hayden knew Palmerville Station well. He knew Stephen Struber, Diane Wilson and her parents. He owned and operated a mining lease on the Palmer River Goldfields, known as Jessup Creek Mining Lease, for seven years from 2000 to 2007. You could say Bob had seen the goldfields from both sides of the fence. Bob is very unwell and in medical care it is unlikely he will ever be well enough to be interviewed. Bob was concerned about aspects of this case. He conducted investigations and wrote copious notes covering almost 50 pages. He handed those notes to the Diane Wilson family. His investigations are too voluminous to read here, but the following is a brief summary of why he got involved. These are his words. In July 2019, I received a copy of the book Murder on the River of Gold from Robert Reed, the author. I had helped Robert Reed with some of the information in his book when he was compiling it, so he presented me with a copy in thanks for the assistance. After reading the book and from my local knowledge of the Palmer River Goldfields and its inhabitants, I became acutely aware of numerous discrepancies in the prosecution evidence and the defence of the accused. As a result of my concerns, I undertook investigations with the witnesses and families of the people involved. I may speak more about Bob Hayden in future episodes. 
You may recall in episode two, I spoke with Tanya, niece of Diane Wilson. I asked her if she would speak with Diane Wilson and determine her current position on the case. That is, does she still deny involvement in the murder of Bruce Shuler? Or is she now willing to disclose the whereabouts of Bruce Shuler's body, particularly in light of the no-body, no-parole legislation Diane is aware of? Tanya messaged me last week to say she had only just been able to speak with Diane. Diane continues to deny any involvement in the murder of Bruce Shuler. That raises a conundrum for the Shuler family in my view. They can continue to live in hope that one day Diane or Stephen will give up the location of Bruce's body. That looks less likely with each passing day. As I stated in the last episode, I believe the only way to resolve what happened in that gully on 9 July 2012 is by having a coronial inquest and or a crime corruption commission investigation, triple C, with witnesses called to a secret star chamber hearing. Some hard decisions will need to be made. At trial, one of the prospectors gave curious evidence that he smelt gunpowder after hearing the discharge of a weapon from about 300 metres and whilst on the move. More than several people commented to me regarding that peculiar claim. One listener informed me they discussed that matter with a person they described as an Australian ballistics expert, if not a world expert, who stated it would be nigh on impossible to smell gunpowder under those circumstances. I guess I'll be adding that red flag to the list. No doubt the defence may be interested in talking to that expert, and I have his details if needed. For those who have listened to one of my other podcasts, Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy, you would be familiar with Jeff Johnson. I'm quite happy to go on the record and say that if you found yourself in a legal situation requiring the services of an expert legal mind, you would benefit by having a Jeff Johnson on your team. Loose Ends covered the murder of the three Singh siblings in Bridgman Downs, Brisbane in 2003. Max Seeker was convicted and sentenced to 35 years imprisonment for those murders in 2012. 2012 was certainly a big year. The Singh case, the Sandrine Jordan disappearance, Bruce Shuler's disappearance. Jeff Johnson was asked to review the Seeker case in 2018. By then, he was retired and conducted the review pro bono. He continues to act in the matter to this day. There is simply no other way to describe it other than to say Johnson decimated the Crown case against Max Seeker. It was a circumstantial case of some 18 points. There are very few of those 18 points still relevant and available to the Crown. It really is a murder case the Queensland Government and the Queensland Police Service do not want to see back in the appeals court, particularly in an election year. A petition to do just that is now before the Attorney-General, a politician, to refer it to the Court of Appeal. We shall have to wait and see how that pans out. My thoughts regarding politicians being involved in the legal process are well known. The similarities between the three murder cases, subjects of my podcasts, is actually quite striking. The Stafford case was a strong circumstantial and forensic case, until it wasn't. The Seeker case was a circumstantial case that is now very questionable. In all three instances, there was no motive, none or little DNA, No witnesses, no admissions, none or little forensic evidence. In Stafford and Seeker, there was strong evidence of police fabricating evidence, perjuring and planting evidence. Fortunately, I have not seen that in the Shuler case. As I said, I want a legal opinion on the Shuler case and who better qualified than Jeff Johnson to give an opinion. I spoke with him recently. 
Jeff, thanks for joining me today. I know you've spent a lot of time reviewing this case, and I appreciate that. For the listeners, I asked Jeff if he would review the evidence and uh, give me his legal opinion on it, which he has agreed to do very kindly. Can we just start with your background so that the listener can understand where you're coming from? You had more than 50 years as a legal practitioner. Is that the case? Yeah, I was admitted in 1969, mate, so... What are we are Coming up 55 years, I suppose. You did a lot of uh, criminal work in that time? Mate, I was a litigation lawyer. My main area of expertise would probably be more accurately described in relation to commercial litigation, using that term in the broadest sense. I did a lot of many and varied litigation cases and included some large-scale criminal cases uh, probably the most notable one of which was Brian Maher's tax fraud cases in the 80s where I was engaged in the Supreme Court for over six months, then in the Court of Appeal and then in the High Court. And over that time, I've had um, appeals to the Court of Appeal and the High Court. Uh, so my experience is broad-based. Thanks for that. When was the first time you heard about this case? Um I think when when I saw it on your Facebook page that you were doing this particular podcast, so I started to follow it and see right. what it was about. But you're now up to speed with the with the case. You spent some time, mate. mate I think so. Uh, we'll get to it. I, I mean, I've sent you an email outlining the essence of my opinion and the basis upon which I formed that opinion. So I think that probably amply demonstrates that I'm sufficiently across the evidence, across the conviction, across the Court of Appeal and High Court decisions to pass an opinion as to what I think the the, the legal position was. Excellent. Well, let's get into it, mate. I want to start out by explaining to your listeners that in analysing the trial uh, and those the conviction and the subsequent appeal judgments, I've based that upon the law as it stands and the way in which the jury then was directed to apply that law by the trial judge. Uh, Sorry, at the outset, I want to say I read the summing up to the jury by Justice Henry. Uh, I thought it was a very fair summing up. Uh, It covered matters... Uh, in a way in which I regard judges, uh, good judges, cover them, uh, and it left it open to the jury to make their decision based upon the facts, uninfluenced by anything that the judge might have said. The case was very much a circumstantial case, Graham, as you're well aware. That's right, Jeff. In fact, what she wrote for the listener's benefit is, Based upon the law as it relates to circumstantial evidence, I believe the jury were well entitled to conclude that Struber slash Wilson were guilty of the murder of Bruce Shuler. Perhaps you can enlarge on that. And for the record, I actually agree with you. Yes, Graham. As I said, there was some direct evidence, of course, relating to identification uh, such as it was, but there was no direct evidence... in that there was no body found, um, there was no guns found that were directly connected to the the uh, a death of Bruce Shuler, and there was no evidence that he in fact actually died. It's all inference. Mm. But what I say is that given the state of the evidence presented to the jury, Inferences could be reasonably drawn from that evidence, which favoured the conclusion that Mr. Struber uh, and Mrs. Wilson uh, were well, you know, guilty of the murder of Bruce Shuler. Uh, And in each instance, I couldn't find any alternate inference that reasonably supported a not guilty verdict on the evidence as presented. Now, in such a case as this where there's absence of DNA, there's absence of direct evidence as to the cause of death, 
etc., etc., there may be evidence that arises at some stage that totally contradicts the evidence that's presented at trial. But I can only go on the basis of what was presented. And that's the conclusion I reached based upon that evidence. And uh, and I totally agree with you. As I kept saying through the, um, well, the first three episodes, it was a slam dunk that uh, they were guilty. I think the crux of it is what you said there is based on the evidence that was presented at trial. Of course. And what I say is there was a lot of evidence not presented at trial. And had it been presented, what would the outcome have been? And quite seriously, given my task, I leave that to you. You're the investigator. (laughs) You're the storyteller. I'll limit myself to two things. Uh, my conclusions based upon the evidence is presented, and I'll explain that in a little more detail. And then if you give me the opportunity, I'll have something to say about problems with circumstantial evidence. You have all the opportunity in the world, Jeff. Go for it. Thanks. So, mate, uh, going on with that email, I then gave you four instances where I referred to the evidence. So maybe if I, uh, you can either read them out or I'll read them out. I don't mind. What would you prefer? I'm happy for you to read them out, Jeff. Okay. Well, number one, yes, there were inconsistencies in the evidence of the prospectors, but likewise, that also applied to Struber and Wilson. Now, given the state of your podcast and your coverage of evidence, I'm not going to go into great detail uh, because I don't think it's necessary. What I do say is then the property that is the crime scene, all 500 square miles of it, belonged to Struber and Wilson. There was credible evidence of antagonism towards trespassers, for example, at the Crockhole, the confrontation. Even though inconsistent. All three prospectors gave evidence of identification of a vehicle similar to Struber's and seeing Wilson and Struber there that day. Although challenged, it was a matter for the jury to determine and the guilty verdict, which at the end of the day was unanimous, determined in the jury's mind that beyond a reasonable doubt, Struber and Wilson were present and murdered Mr. Shuler. And all I say about that is that on the evidence that was presented, that was a verdict that was clearly open to the jury. They're the finders of fact. And that was the conclusion that they obviously reached. Yep, agreed. Okay, then point two. The fact that the body was not found and the evidence of the gunshots raised an inference that Mr. Shuler was shot by the property owners and his body disposed of in an area where it was unlikely to be found, brackets and it has not been found, Mr. Struber and Mrs. Wilson had guns readily available in the vehicles and that's an admission. And the fact that one or two guns cannot be located also, in my mind, raises the inference that they killed Mr. Shuler, disposed of the bodies and disposed of the guns that were used in the commission of the crime to cover up the crime. That was an inference that, in my view, was open to the jury to find. And again, I've been unable at this stage and based on the evidence presented to find an inference from those facts that would indicate a not guilty situation. I was of that opinion also until I read the coroner's findings. Now, initially, it was the Crown case that it was a 22 lever action rifle and a 357 Magnum. And they were two weapons that were missing, which supported their case. The coroner then found that it was a shotgun that killed him, which then, to my mind, 
really muddies the water. Yeah. Doesn't... Let me say something about that. I can't see any basis for for the coroner making that finding in that way. I think the evidence relating to gunshot sounds is so inconclusive that really it's impossible to determine what guns were fired and whether they were rifles, Winchesters, handguns or shotguns. I just think the evidence is very unclear about that and doesn't is not sufficient, in my view, to make such a finding. So I think it's more important, Graham, that the admission that there's three guns missing, two of which appear to have come from the Struber vehicle and the other one, belatedly, uh, from the Wilson, you know, George Wilson vehicle. But I can't find any adequate explanation and let's just restrict it to the pistol and the, the, the rifle that appear to have disappeared from the Schuber uh, vehicle. I can't find any rational explanation as to how or why those disappeared. I don't know whether anybody's asked the direct question of Mr. Struber or Mrs. Wilson as to what happened. Do they know what happened to them? To those guns, uh, have they any idea, even if it's a theory as to how they disappeared? Because in the absence of that, the only rational explanation, I think, is that they may well have been used to murder Mr. Shuler and then disposed of to cover up the crime. Okay. And maybe in your course of your investigations... Those direct questions could be asked of Struber and Wilson. Well, you know, what do you say happened to those guns that disappeared and haven't been found? Anyway, in conclusion, based upon what I've just said, there's then no reasonable basis for an inference that someone other than Struber and Wilson disposed of the guns used to kill him, based upon, again, the evidence presented at trial. Okay. Then we come to point three. There's a Struber admission that he was driving the unregistered vehicle that day. And Struber, of course, gave evidence. I won't say anything further. The evidence is that the witnesses saw Struber and Wilson at the gully and that Wilson is said to be seen taking a firearm from behind the seat in that vehicle. All witnesses appear to have heard the first shot. The vehicles heard driving in direction of the gully where the burnt patches are then found. There are tyre marks and scrape marks that could have come from the Struber vehicle. And I want to make the point at this stage because the evidence that was changed by the police officer who did that part of the investigation didn't exclude the Struber vehicles. What it did, on my reading from the High Court particularly, was that it was said to include both the registered and unregistered Struber vehicles, but also the George Wilson vehicle as well as other vehicles that could have had similar tyres, you know, attached to those vehicles. So that that in itself didn't help the Struber-Wilson cause at the High Court because their vehicles were still possibly vehicles that could have made those tyre marks and gouge marks in the gully. So given that, that was then further circumstantial evidence that was available to the jury to form a reasonable inference that Struber and Wilson in one of the vehicles travelled to the site of the second shot where the blood and other uh, things were found. So, again, only based on the evidence that was presented at trial that was not an unreasonable inference to draw. There was no, at that time, inference available that anybody else could have caused 
the second shot or participated in the murders. The evidence from that subsequently came forward from a Mr May that he saw boots protruding from under a tarpaulin on the back of George Wilson's ute was not evidence that came up at trial, was not evidence that was available to the jury. And as you well understand, it didn't get to square one with the High Court because it was an absolute turnabout in the evidence that Struber claims then might exonerate him from the evidence he gave at trial Mm. when he gave evidence. Because he said he and Wilson were always together where he then endeavoured to say to the High Court, well, hang on, Um, Mrs Wilson could well have been with her brother George Wilson based upon the evidence of Mr May. So that based on that, in my view, the appeals, you know, quite rightly were decided um, by way of rejection. Uh, And given the state of evidence, the jury were well entitled to find both Struber and Wilson guilty of the murders. And then on point four... Before you get on to that, I'd I'd just like to make the comment that my reading of the police officer's evidence in relation to the tyres excluded the unregistered vehicle. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. From making those marks on the hill, on the ravine. Mm. But it was so confusing and so muddied, I think it's open to interpretation in a whole range of ways. That was just my reading on it. Just by way of comment on that, mate, uh, you know, I can understand that. But let me say that when that was raised by the Crown at the High Court level at least, it wasn't challenged by uh, Struber's Defence Counsel. Mm. Uh, so I've taken it from that, that in general terms it was accepted and that they then relied on the fact that it could have included the Wilson vehicle uh, mm. more so than uh, yeah. excluding the unregistered. Okay, okay right. Dave. Fair enough. Um, all right, mate. And in point four, you know, these two things gave me particular cause for concern. The first one is the missing firearms, which I've just discussed with you and made some suggestions. And the second one was that strange telephone call that Mrs. Wilson made a couple of days after (laughs) the murder. I can find no rational explanation for that. And there doesn't appear to have been one. Again, she might be asked about that. Why would you ring up and suggest that You've got information concerning the murder of Bruce Schuller that the police were looking in the wrong spot, that it was some kilometres, 13 or 15 kilometres from uh, where they were looking and that, you know, she had information about somebody that was involved. Why would you do that? I mean, the inference is, the inference in favour of the Crown is, of course, well, that's indicative of a guilty mind and what you're endeavouring to do is send the police off in in, mm. in different directions. Um, yep. If there's some other explanation, I'd like to hear Mrs Wilson's explanation for that. 
Yeah, that was right out of left field, that phone call. And to add to that, the defence admitted it in that admissions list, which which totally um, confused yeah. me. But as I understand it, their position was that they didn't think it was incriminating and therefore they let it go through. Yeah, uh, yeah. As her solicitor said, she told her apparently, that was a crock hole, by the way, that she was referring to where the police should be looking and that they should be looking at the prospectus because of that previous um, encounter right. at the crock hole. Right. But right. be that as it may, she made it. It went to the admissions list, and there it is. It's out there. Yeah, well, as I say, I just I just couldn't find anything where there was that degree of rational explanation for that telephone call. There may well have been, but it, it, it's oh, something that, that concerned me. As I understand it, I could be corrected on this, as I understand it, it was never clarified at court. No, it was, and, and, that, and wasn't, the on, wasn't the only thing no, that doesn't that, appear to have been clarified. That conversation between uh, Diane Wilson and her solicitor was not brought up in court. So, yes, the, the jury, <laughs> in fact, the jury, I think the day that they were sent out, they asked for that uh, phone call to be read out again and they asked for the admissions list to be read out again. So, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yep, I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. So, Graham, in essence, that's in reality the basis upon which I've formed that opinion, and I'm sure it really corresponds with yours. It does. The case is such, I mean, the absence of the body and all that, you know, I can understand why, you know, you have the interest in investigating um, those circumstances, and I'll leave that to your good self. And where that may may lead will be dependent, of course, upon what you find out by talking to relevant people involved and discovering more of what didn't appear before the jury, perhaps at the trial. So good luck with all that, and and uh, you know I know you're well qualified to conduct that inquiry. May I make some comments about circumstantial evidence? Of course. Because this is a classic case, of course. Uh, you know, no body, no guns, no DNA. Let me say something about the absence of DNA again, just for your benefit. This was 2012. And you and I don't need to discuss, because we've highlighted it to the nth degree in the Seeker case, the problems with the Queensland Forensic Laboratory with respect to DNA testing is well canvassed at this stage. I would respectfully suggest that it might be fruitful to have a close look at the DNA evidence. You know, it may become more apparent if you get the police file, if you haven't already done so. Uh, and determine whether or not it's one of those instances where, you know, DNA might have been found, but the DNA was inconclusive and unable to be identified. But I think it's certainly worth investigating, given the well-publicised problems with the Queensland Laboratory and DNA. And this DNA sort of falls within that time frame where those problems exist. So I just make that by way of comment if it's of any help. Thank you. Um, the development of criminal cases based largely on circumstantial evidence has always given me cause for concern. Uh, and I think you're well aware of that from previous discussions, but let me go into it in a little more detail. As I said before, there's some direct evidence here of from the prospectors of seeing vehicles and seeing Wilson and Struber and hearing gunshots but there's no direct evidence that anybody saw anybody shoot Mr. Shuler. There's no evidence that you'd recover from a body, uh, no evidence uh, of the actual commission of the murder, so that you're then relying on the circumstances that we've previously discussed. There's inconsistencies on both sides. What I've always been concerned about is that the absence of direct evidence of the commission of a crime encourages narratives, theories and speculation. It opens up Pandora's box where 
there's temptation on the part of those investigating to fill in blank spaces that support inferences of guilt and to totally ignore or largely ignore evidence that supports inferences of innocence. And I want to give your listeners an example. Many would have listened to the Seeker podcast and may well remember my explanation with respect to the 34-second telephone call that Max Seeker made to Neilmer on the Sunday night when he said to go over and murder the Singh siblings. The judge, quite rightly from the outset and throughout the trial, told that jury that unless they could be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker actually went to Grass Tree Close on the Sunday night, Monday morning, as alleged by the Crown, they could not be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that he murdered the Singh siblings. The Crown, as you know, failed to call witnesses who could provide exculpatory evidence in that regard, and they relied in principle upon the fact that Neilma made a one-second telephone call to Max, which they alleged was a system agreed to between Max and Neilma whereby that would indicate it's safe to Max to come over and see her and that that phone call wouldn't wake up Canal, who supposedly was asleep, so that he would inform the father that Max was seeing Neil. Now, as I quite rightly pointed out in that podcast, and it certainly wasn't highlighted in my view at the trial, if Max was concerned about waking Canal, the last thing he'd do would be ring Neil back and talk to her for 34 seconds, because that would certainly been likely to wake up Canal uh, with the phone ringing in the Singh house. The prosecutor just passes that off as, Graham, a distraction. You ignore that. That's just a distraction. No, it's not a distraction. It's a element of circumstantial evidence that only points to an indication of innocence. Because if you were intending to go over and you were worrying about waking up Canal you wouldn't make that 34-second telephone call. You'd get in your car and head off to Grass Tree Close. But no, the jury's not invited to, as they should have, form a inference that that was Max not intending to go over, Max telling Neilma, you're ill, go to bed, sweet dreams, see you later, because that's what he claimed. You pass it off as a distraction and you avoid the jury or having to accept the inference that Max didn't go over on the Sunday night and didn't commit the murders. And therein lies the problem with, in my view, circumstantial evidence. Because what it does, Graham, it reverses the onus of proof. We hear prosecutor after prosecutor and every judge propounding our system being that to obtain a conviction, the prosecution have the obligation to prove your guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, in circumstantial cases, what I say is that's no longer the case. They can raise inferences which they say circumstantial evidence only points to your guilt and overlook instances where there is cogent evidence which points clearly to an inference that you may well not be guilty. And unless you can prove or raise and prove a competing inference that says, no, here's the other evidence you need to look at, like the 34-second telephone call that says, I didn't go over on the Sunday night and I'm innocent, you've reversed the onus. You dismiss it as a distraction, tell the jury to ignore that. The one-second telephone call, in essence, means he went over, murdered the Singh siblings, and that's an end to the matter. And that's the problem because there's no direct evidence that he did that. 
There's no evidence of him leaving the house. There's no evidence of him driving his car. There's no evidence of anybody seeing him leave the Seeker house. There's no evidence of anybody seeing him arrive at the Singh household on the Sunday night. You've just got these telephone calls. And the only thing the prosecutor focuses on is a one-second telephone call that's designed not to wake up Canal. That is just a classic example of a narrative that's been designed to obtain a verdict of guilty as opposed to raising fairly an inference which supports him not going over and the finding that he's not guilty. I'm seeing some similarities as well in the Shuler case. Right, and that's why I raise it. Can I ask you this? On what evidence did the DPP prosecute Struber and Wilson, in your view? (laughs) Mate, I think it was the missing firearms. I really think that was a crucial factor in this. You know, and without rational explanation for the missing firearms, I mean, quite clearly it appears that there were shots fired. Well, that was the evidence. Uh, That evidence came from the prospectors, of course, but the disappearance of Bruce Shuler, the absence of any body, the hearing of shots fired, and most importantly, guns disappearing that may well have been used in the shooting seemed to me to be the evidence that went to conviction. Call me old-fashioned here, Jeff. If the Crown witnesses do not put the defendants at the murder scene, how do you prosecute them? Well, again... You can draw inferences, okay? There's evidence that from the prospectors that they saw the Struber vehicle. There's evidence, whether you accept it or not, there's evidence that they saw Struber and Wilson in the vehicle. There's evidence that they saw Wilson get out and take what appeared to be a rifle from behind the seat. There's evidence of hearing a shot. There's evidence at least of hearing the vehicle move and then subsequent to that hearing a second shot. So all of that is in the current state of the law, circumstantial evidence upon which a jury, who are the finders of fact, can infer that Struber and Wilson then went to the area where the second shot was fired and killed Mr. Shuler. That's the current state of play. So it comes back to those inferences, my friend. Yes, good old inferences. I'm wondering why the jury did not hear, and I won't call it evidence because it wasn't given, did not hear the information that the prospectors said Struber's vehicle turned around and went back to the homestead. In other words, it didn't go to the murder scene. I wonder why the jury didn't hear that. Well, I wonder why... Defence counsel didn't cross-examine on that very point. Yeah. Let me say, you know, I'm not in the position of knowing what defence counsel's instructions were or, you know, the old story. Sometimes you don't want to ask a question of a witness in cross-examination because you don't know what the answer to that question is. Yep. Okay? So there may be cogent reasons why defence counsel didn't cross-examine, but, you know, if I was in that situation given that inconsistency with respect to what they heard and what they observed relating to what they say was the Struber vehicle, you would think he would cross-examine at some length on that because it conflicts with the evidence upon which you draw the inference that they went down the gully and then shot and killed Mr Shaw. Would you agree? I agree. I ask this question. Did the prosecutor have an obligation or an onus to raise that information? Again, I won't call it evidence. To raise that information that the prospectors consistently told that story for three years. The prosecution have that overriding obligation to present all of the evidence, including exculpatory evidence, and to be fair in the way in which they prosecute the case. It's a bit of a grey area, in my view, relating to that particular evidence. 
given the evidence that the prospectors gave at the trial, I would have thought that that might have been a forensic decision that a prosecutor could make. Well, it's in the statement. It's been disclosed. Uh, it's not being hidden. Defence counsel is quite at liberty to cross-examine concerning those matters if that's what you know what they wish to do. So that just on the face of it, mate, without knowing enough about what be, went behind the scenes, I would have thought it was more a matter that defence counsel didn't cross-examine about those issues and why, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, but that's my view. Yeah. It's a bit of a grey area. So in essence, mate, that's where I'm at with it. As I say, you know, circumstantial evidence can sure be problematic. What do they say? Truth stranger than fiction. And um, sometimes the most extraordinary things can happen that defy logic. Um, hmm. And circumstantial evidence quite often doesn't take that into account. Yeah. Well, I just struggle. I can't get my head around the fact that the prospectors said the Struber vehicle did not go to the second yeah. crime scene, that it, in fact it turned around. And yeah. inference or no inference, if they said it didn't go there, well, call me old-fashioned. How do they kill them if they didn't go there? Didn't get to the jury. Yeah, well, it didn't get to the jury, that's for sure. That's the question, mate. That's the question for you, along with those other issues we've identified. And I hope you've found it helpful. Uh, as I said, I always call it as it is. Um, that's the way I see it. That's the way I see the state of the nation. And good luck with your podcast. As usual, I thank you for your assistance and um, we'll talk again soon. We will, mate. Okay, you have a good day. Thanks again, Jeff. No trouble. Thanks, Graham. Thanks again for that, Jeff Johnson. I appreciate the work that you put into that for me. I trust you, the listener, have gained something from that legal perspective. That was my aim, anyway, to help everyone understand the legal aspects of the case. It was interesting that Jeff raised the matter of the 34-second phone call in the Seeker case. I was not aware he was going to do that until he actually mentioned it. Compare that point to the Shuler murder. In the Seeker case, it was the Crown position that after the 34-second phone call around 11pm on the Sunday night, Seeker drove to the Singh household and murdered the three siblings. In fact, if he did not go to the Singh home that night, he did not murder the victims. He was alibied for the balance of the time after 7am Monday until the bodies were discovered on the Tuesday. That was one of the 18 points of circumstantial evidence the Crown relied on to convict Seeker. Detectives interviewed Seeker's next-door neighbour, who said she saw both Seeker vehicles parked outside the property at 1am on the Monday morning and again at 7am. The family was going camping that morning. She was still up at 1am, packing and preparing for the trip. She remembered it clearly. Jeff found the job card in relation to speaking to the neighbour buried in amongst the other 1,500-odd job cards those murders generated. The card recorded the detective decided not to obtain a statement from the witness because her evidence did not advance the Crown case. And that is not paraphrasing, that is what the card read. The neighbour's evidence remained buried until 2019, when Jeff Johnson found the job card, interviewed the neighbour, and did obtain a statement. At trial, there were statements by Max Seeker's brother and the brother's partner that they had seen and were aware Max Seeker was at home in bed, asleep at 12.30am. The prosecutor refused to call those witnesses because, in his view, they were unreliable. You can read there they were family members and would likely lie on behalf of Max Seeker. But the neighbour's evidence clearly corroborated that. The jury didn't hear any of it. I have seen petitions go to the appeal court on a single point, just like that. One point of contention in a case that may go for weeks. But in the Seeker case, many of the 18 points of circumstantial evidence have been similarly eliminated.
I can assure you the petition in the Seeker case is not based on one point. In the Seeker case, there was evidence the defendant was not at the murder scene, yet it was inferred that he was and a conviction was obtained. In the Holland case, it was inferred Stafford went to the body disposal site, yet evidence existed to the contrary and a conviction was obtained. In the Shuler case, there was evidence that the defendants were not at the murder scene, yet it was inferred they were, and a conviction was obtained. Do you see a pattern? And weird as it is, and as you have heard, in the Shuler case, the evidence the defendants were not at the murder scene was known at the time of trial, but for reasons unknown, did not reach the jury. And that is one of the reasons why I intend to do a deep dive into the evidence and the inconsistencies in this case. And hopefully that mystery and others will be solved. That's it for Episode 6, A Legal Perspective. Thanks for joining me. The Facebook page is Justice for Bruce Shuler. My Facebook page is Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. My email is graham5353 at live.com. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story and make it visible to others. Simply go to the podcast on your podcast app, scroll down and rate or review. I have read some recent reviews, thank you very much. And I'm rating 4.7 out of 5 and I'm very pleased with that. Please tell your family and friends. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music by Janet G. If you like the podcast, you can support me for the one-off cost of a cup of coffee by transferring funds to ComBank, BSB 064180, account 1006-4508. You'll find those and all my other contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.